Welcome to Bible Breath, where we dig into the Word of God to catch our breath for whatever is coming next. Today we're continuing our journey through the Ten Commandments, completing our journey on the Ten Commandments, focusing on the commandments that teach us how to interact with our neighbors now. And remember, our neighbor is anyone around us, especially those who need our mercy and our help. So let's review the commandments that we have talked about so far. And remember, we are using the numbering that you'll find in a book called The Small Catechism, written by a theologian and church reformer named Martin Luther back in the 1500s. So by that numbering, the first commandment was, you shall have no other gods. The second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Third commandment, remember the Sabbath day. Fourth commandment, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. Fifth commandment, you shall not murder. Sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Seventh commandment, you shall not steal. Eighth commandment, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And now remember, for each of these categories, or each of these commandments, especially those that deal with our neighbor, we're stating the general principle of the commandment, and then we're going to make some general applications that scripture allows us to make regarding that principle. And, and we're going to take the ninth and the 10th commandments together because they both deal with the same general principle, but in specific, two specific areas of life. The general principle that the ninth and 10th commandments deal with is contentment. Contentment, like feeling satisfied, believing that I don't need anything more than what I currently have. That is contentment. The Apostle Paul mentions something very important about contentment in Philippians 4, verse 12, where he reads this, where he says this. He says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. There's an important word in that sentence, and that is the word secret. We have to learn how to be content. We have to learn how to be content in two main categories of life. The ninth commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. The tenth commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, workers, animals, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, they both deal with the same topic, coveting or contentment, but in two different areas of life. In the ninth commandment, it deals with non-living things. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. That's a possession. That's stuff, kind of stuff we talked about in the seventh commandment. But the tenth commandment deals with living things, people animals. Um, we need to be content in both of those areas. So let's define what it means to covet when it says you shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, workers, animals, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. To define what it means to covet, I'm going to take it back into the Old Testament into 1 Kings chapter 21, where we meet a man named Naboth. Naboth owned a vineyard. A vineyard is a place where they grow lots of grapes. And it was apparently a beautiful vineyard because the king at the time, whose name was Ahab, he came to Naboth and he said, he said, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever your vineyard is worth. Not a bad offer. But Naboth said, no, this... This was passed on to me. This was an inheritance from my ancestors, and so it is not for sale. I appreciate the offer, but thanks, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And then the Bible tells us that Ahab went home, sullen 
and angry. It wasn't bad for him to offer anything, but, but when Naboth didn't give him what he wanted, when he didn't sell it to him, he was sullen and angry. He was now down thinking, my life is, my life is awful. And so he went home and he was pouty. And then his wife, whose name was Jezebel, came to him and said, why are you so pouty? Why are you so down? And he told him the, the sad story about offering the, for the vineyard and it's such a beautiful vineyard and I really, really want it and, and he won't sell it to me and I'm really, really upset. And, and Jezebel said, you do realize you are the king, right? And as a king, you can do whatever you want. She said, I can see you're upset, so let me do it for you. So Jezebel got some, um, got some letters to write. She wrote letters, put Ahab's, King Ahab's name, her husband's name on it and placed the, the king's seal on them and sent them to the elders and the nobles of the place who lived in, uh, of those who lived in Naboth's city. And in those letters, she wrote this. She said, proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people so that everybody can see him. But then seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them start bringing charges against Naboth and that he cursed God and the king. And then, take him out and stone him to death. And that's what they did. They followed the orders of the king, which were really given by the queen, but it came in the name of the king. And, and they had this big celebration. They brought Naboth out. But then while he was sitting there enjoying himself, these two scoundrels came, started accusing him of all sorts of different things. And then they took Naboth out. And as punishment for the things that he had done, which he really hadn't done, they killed him. And then once they killed him, his vineyard was there for the taking. And Ahab took it. There's a key nugget of information that comes in towards the end of that chapter. And the nugget of info is that God knew what was going on. God knew. And so then God sent Elijah to Ahab and Jezebel to tell them that they would both die very soon and that they would be eaten by dogs. Yikes. So Ahab coveted something. He coveted a thing, which is the ninth commandment. Yeah, he had a strong desire for something that he didn't need to have, but he treated it as something that he did need to have. It affected his mood. He coveted a thing. But of course, things aren't the only things that we can covet. We see that in the life of King David. King David was a very famous king, a very well-known king, and a very good king. He was also a great, great shepherd, great musician, wrote many of the Psalms that we have in the book of Psalms, famously killed Goliath, uh, the great big giant. He was a war hero. People, people loved him. But one day he coveted something, or rather someone, while everybody else was out at war, when he really should have been out with war with them, he went to the, his, the, the, the rooftop of his palace and he looked down and he happened to see a beautiful woman bathing. Her name was Bathsheba. And he sent for Bathsheba. Introduced himself to her. Said, I'm the king. One thing led to another. They ended up sleeping together, having sex together. And then David sent Bathsheba home. Never to deal with her again, maybe. But then Bathsheba sent word to David a short time later saying that she was pregnant and pregnant by him. He thought, boy, that would be really bad if anyone knew that the king of Israel would have gotten another man's wife pregnant. Bathsheba was married to a man named Uriah, Uriah the Hittite, who was out fighting the battle. And so David thought, I need to cover this up. So he invited Uriah the Hittite back from the battlefront. And he said, he said, you do so much for us and you, you fought so well, I, would, I just wanted to give you a break. So why don't you go home, enjoy some time with your wife, enjoy a little, uh, some evening with your wife and just, you know, do the things that husbands and wives do. And, you know, and, and just as a thank you for all that you've done for us. And Uriah said, I can't do that. Said, I love my wife, but the guys are out there fighting and they're still fighting. They're fighting right now. And you've pulled me back. I need to be out there with them. It would be dishonorable to do that. 
And so he went to his house, but he just slept on the front porch. He didn't, he didn't lay with his wife and eventually he went, he went back to the battlefront and, and he and his wife never slept together. David was hoping that, that they would sleep together and they would be able to say that the baby was theirs then, but it didn't work out that way. And time was ticking. Soon everyone would know that Bathsheba was pregnant and that it wasn't Uriah's child. So he came up with another plan. He said, well, Uriah is the only one who knows that he hasn't slept with his wife in a very long time. So what if I have him killed? And that's what David did. He gave instructions to his military leaders to, to go out into battle, put Uriah at the front line, and the next time they engaged with, next time they engaged with another army, to command everybody to take a step back except Uriah. Don't tell Uriah to do that. So that when everybody would take a step back, Uriah would be there out by himself, and he would die. And that's what happened. And when David heard the news that that happened, he invited Bathsheba back to the palace so that he could be seen as a king who was having pity on this poor woman and her unborn child. But that's not what he was. Now, David was guilty of committing a lot of sins in that. And I want, I'm going to list off a couple of sins that David committed there, and I want you to identify which one was the worst one. And so he, he started with the sin of lust. He lusted after uh, sexual desire for somebody that, was, that he was not married to. And then he, the act of committing adultery had um, an intimate relationship, a sexual relationship with someone that he was not married to. There was lust, there's adultery. And then there was conspiracy to murder. So he was coming up with the plans to murder. And then there was actually the murder, even though he didn't actually carry it out. He made the orders to have somebody else carried out. So he's guilty of murder. And then, of course, lying about the whole thing. Lust, adultery, conspiracy to murder, murder and lying. And if you were to pick the worst sin of those, which one would you pick? I'm going to suggest that the worst one was the first one. Lust. The one that started all of it. Because if you could address the lust, if he could address the lust in his heart, if he would have gone up to that rooftop, seen a beautiful woman bathing, recognized that he was lusting over somebody who was not his wife and told him, you know what? That's ungodly. I should just go back to bed. And if that's what he had done, then he never would have committed adultery, would not have conspired to murder, would not have murdered anyone, and would not have lied about it. If you address the sin in the heart that no one can see, typically, it takes care of so many others. And that's, that's something that Jesus mentioned. When he said, as we're looking into the world, looking at sin, make sure you look in the right place first. Because out of the heart, he said, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. He just went on to list sin after sin after sin that take place. You know, sins that take start in the heart. So the heart is what makes a person unclean. And if you can address what's going on in the heart, you're going to spare yourself and a whole lot of people a whole lot of grief. And that's what the ninth and the tenth commandments deal with. They deal with coveting. Coveting takes place in the heart, and that's a, a Bible buzzword, covet. covet. To covet means feeling discontent because you don't have something that you want. Covet is feeling discontent because you don't have something that you want. And this is a sin of the heart, which means that you can sometimes successfully hide that sin from the people around you. You can feel something about something and not reveal that you're feeling it. So it can take place in the heart. But this contentment often, not always, but often leads to sinful actions, just like it did for David, just like it did for Ahab. Now, this doesn't mean that it's wrong to want other things. You know, it wasn't wrong for Ahab to want a vineyard. It wasn't. It's like it's not wrong to want 
a, a new phone or a new car or the ability to eat at nice restaurants. It's not wrong to want those things. And it's not wrong to want things related to other living things, other people. It's not wrong for a single person to want a spouse. It's not wrong for a married person to want a spouse who treats them better if their spouse isn't treating them well. It's not wrong for a married couple who has no children to want children. It's not wrong for a lonely person to want a friend. It's not wrong to want any of those things. It's not wrong to see value in any of those things. But if we begin to look at those things or people not as uh, things that we might or can have, but instead as things that we must have, in the same way that we must have God, if we start putting it on that level, then we're getting really close to crossing the line of when it becomes sinful coveting. And as David and Ahab both discovered, that's a line that we should not take lightly for a couple of reasons. Uh, firstly, I want you to think of some of the most universally, uh, some of the people in the world who are most universally considered evil. This, the most evil people in the history of the world. Maybe you think of like an Adolf Hitler or an Osama bin Laden or a Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay, just some examples. Do you think you could ever do what they did? And maybe that's an easy answer for you right now. Maybe the obvious answer is, well, no, I could never see myself doing any of those things. And that's good. That's a very, very good, that's a very, very good answer. If you're in that place, I'm very glad you're in that place. However, the biblical answer to, do you think you could ever do what they did is absolutely yes. Every single person is capable of committing every single sin. This is one of the reasons that coveting should not be taken lightly. David, in Psalm 51, you know, the David who ended up committing adultery and all those other things, he wrote in Psalm 51, he said, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He was reminding himself and then reminding us in the process that his sinfulness went way, went way back longer than he was aware of it. And it was deeper than he was aware too. That all of our sinfulness at the beginning, very beginning of our conception, our hearts are capable of committing every sin from the very beginning. Our failure is often believing that they are as corrupt as the Bible says we are. That there is nothing good that lives in me from nature. Not as I am born as a sinful human being. Just think of David as an example. If you would have asked David a week before he saw Bathsheba, David, are you the kind of guy who's ever going to have someone's spouse murdered for no good reason? Are you the kind of guy who's going to sleep with another man's wife and then to try to cover it up, you're going to have that, you're going to have that guy murdered and taken out of the equation? You know, he would have said, he would have said, there's no way I would ever do that. Just like Peter is a disciple who, you know, if you would have asked him, are you ever going to deny Jesus, deny that you know Jesus three times in the same night? I mean, he gave you the answer. He said, he said, no way, there's no way I would ever do that. Other people might do that, but but I never would. You know, his failure there was to recognize just how corrupt his heart really is. The same, the same is true with David. Nobody ever gets into life saying, you know what, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a serial killer someday. I can see myself committing major crimes. I can see myself overseeing a Holocaust. Nobody starts out that way. But the capability to do those things and follow through with those things, that's already there. I mentioned three names of evil people in the world before. 
Adolf Hitler, Osama bin Laden, Jeffrey Dahmer. Do you know that Jeffrey Dahmer went to an elementary school where the Word of God was taught every day? He grew up believing the Bible. He grew up believing that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that his sins were forgiven, that we are children of God, and that's how we ought to live. That's how he grew up. That's what he was taught. And so how did he become that person who did what he did? The book of James tells us how that happens. He says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. And then, after the desire has conceived itself in the heart, then it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. At some point, Jeffrey Dahmer didn't pay attention to something that was going on in his heart that started out very small. And so he eventually, because it grew and grew and grew without him removing it or dealing with it, he grew to be a person that he never thought he would be. Coveting is incredibly dangerous and something we should not take lightly. And also something we should not take lightly for another reason. Go back to Naboth's vineyard, King Ahab. Remember what that chapter of the Bible said about Ahab and Jezebel after, after Naboth had been removed from the equation? God knew. God knew. He sent Elijah to tell Ahab and Jezebel that they would both die and be eaten by dogs. Now God knew not only what they had done, but what was going on in their hearts. Remember what it says in 1 John chapter 3. We've looked at this passage before in relation to the fifth commandment, where it says, anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer, even if they haven't committed the act of murdering. Anybody who just has the hateful feeling in their heart that they might, they might wish that that person's life were gone. Anyone who hates is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him, John goes on to write. Like God knows our thoughts and God promises to punish us even for our sinful thoughts. Which is why it's important to remember that those aren't the only types of thoughts you have. You know, by the grace of God, there's something else that lives inside of us besides evil desires. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes about it when he says, you know, that's, that's not the way of life that you learned talking about sins and all the things that take place in the heart that we wish weren't there. That's not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. When God brought you to faith, God placed holy desires in your heart. And that's why God can tell us, like, like he does through Paul in, in Philippians chapter 4, he says, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. God wants you to think about those. He believes you can think about those. He knows we do think about those things, but we do both, don't we? We think about the good things, but we also struggle with the bad things. We desire both sinful and godly things. And that's, that's a hard thing to live with. And it's a hard thing to deal with even for Christians. I mean, some might say, well, okay, so that's true. So I have good thoughts and I have bad thoughts. But if someone is truly a Christian, then they will think about and do more good things than bad things, won't they? It sounds right. It sounds good. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says something else. 
In Galatians 5, it, it really depicts just two very strong opponents going at each other, working inside of us all the time. In Galatians 5, it says, The flesh, that's talking about our sinful hearts, they des- it always desires what is contrary to the Spirit, always. And the Spirit, the new life in us, the Spirit always desires what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not able to do whatever you want. You are not able to do whatever you want. There is a constant battle inside of you of two very strong sides. And one that was really frustrating for people like the Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 7, you're probably familiar with this section, but he says, he says, I find this, this principle at work in my life. This is something that is always true about me. Although I want to do good, evil is always right there with me. Because in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I know it's good. But I see something else at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. And notice he didn't say, what a wretched man I was before I came to faith. He said, what a wretched man I am. He's talking about the battle that's going on inside of him at that very moment. He desires the good, but he can't stop desiring the evil. And then he says, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? It's like, it feels like as I struggle with this, I feel like I'm dying moment after moment after moment after moment because I want it to be easier. I want to do better. But it's not, and I'm not. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then he answers his own question. (sighs) Thanks be to God who delivers me through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how did he deliver him? By time and again, reminding him that his sin doesn't define him. Just like scripture makes it clear that your sin doesn't define you. The completed work of Jesus defines you. The completed work of Jesus defines you. That we have this struggle going on inside of us. A struggle we sometimes win and a struggle we often don't. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. That's how your Heavenly Father sees you. Jesus' work defines you as God's child. And that was Paul's secret to contentment. Remember in Philippians 4, he says, I've I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Paul's life wasn't exactly easy at that moment. He's, he's sitting in prison when he's writing that. So many good things have been taken away from him. He's not around friends or family. He didn't have very many comforts. He said, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then he said a very famous verse, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And that wasn't a way of saying, I can do anything I put my mind to. It was a way of Paul saying, whatever situation I'm in, whatever I have, I know I'm going to be okay. I don't need anything more than what I currently have because the one thing that I really need is right here with me. And of course, that one thing is God. Just like God is with you and God is for you. And God loves you. And if all of that is true, what more do you need? We need nothing more.
is why we can look at the ninth commandment and get excited about keeping it. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. What does this mean, according to Martin Luther? We should fear and love God that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house or obtain it by a show of right, but do all we can to help them keep it. And the tenth commandment, about living things, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, workers, animals, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not force or entice away our neighbor's spouse or workers or animals, but urge them to stay and do their duty. One final thing about Naboth's vineyard. So that's in 1 Kings 21. And towards the end of the chapter, God reveals to us and to them that he knew what was going on. He knew what was going on in their hearts, and he sent Elijah to say that they were Ahab and Jezebel, they were both going to die, they were going to, both going to be eaten by dogs. And then it gives us this parenthetical remark about, about them. And it says, There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner, the Bible says, by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. And so he was an awful guy. But then it says this, says, when Ahab heard these words, the ones that Elijah spoke to him, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, and he fasted. He lay in sackcloth, and he went away meekly. In other words, he was repenting. He recognized his sin, and he was sorry that he did it. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, it says. And God said to Elijah, have you noticed how Ahab humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself, I will not bring disaster on him today but I will bring it on his house eventually. So Ahab saw his sin. He repented of it and God had mercy on him. There were still consequences that Ahab and his family were going to have to live with because of what he did. And that's always the case when it comes to sin. There are always consequences. Life changes because of our sin. And always in more difficult ways, either immediately or down the road. But one of those consequences for Ahab wasn't going to be God not forgiving him because that's what God has promised to do. Remember when we started about when we started talking about all these commandments? We looked at Exodus chapter 20 where we find the commandments. And after God spoke the commandments to the people, it says when the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet, saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, "You can speak to us yourself, please, and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die." So they were terrified by these laws. And remember, we noted that you might sometimes experience something similar as you think about each of the Ten Commandments. The laws of God are perfect, and God demands perfection of us. But man, these laws, they expose our imperfections. And that can make us easily afraid of God. But when that happens, it's important to remember another part of the context of the giving of the Ten Commandments. And that's what God spoke to the Israelites just before he gave them just before the first commandment, when he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He wanted them to remember that he's a God who saves. And not just saves his people from Egypt, but fast forward about 1,400 years from that moment to a manger in Bethlehem, and then to a cross outside Jerusalem. He's the Lord our God who saves us from every sin. We don't have to be afraid of him, ever. God loves us. He saves us. He has mercy on us. And with his laws, he guides us, keeping us always close to him. One last review on the Ten Commandments. Ready? First commandment, you shall have no other gods. Second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. 
Third commandment, remember the Sabbath day. Fourth commandment, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. Fifth commandment, you shall not murder. Sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Seventh commandment, you shall not steal. Eighth commandment, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Ninth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, workers, animals, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Last thing, we get a good summary of how to view the commandments in the words of the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 13, he's talking to a group of people and he says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, through Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you are not able to obtain by the law of Moses. Remember what justify means. It means to declare a person not guilty. God declares you not guilty of every sin simply by believing in Jesus. If you try to come up with that justification by keeping all the laws in just the right way, you'll fail. We can never do it. So God gives us justification through Jesus. And so that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says very simply, whatever you do now, do it all for the glory of God.